0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Sword and Spirit, a podcast by First Baptist Church, Bay St. Louis. Today we've got our senior pastor, Brett Frazier, and our associate and student discipleship pastor, Dustin Pierce, continuing our discussion on the Baptist faith and message. So, let's jump right in. Welcome back. We hope you're having a great day. We are finishing our series on the church. And so today we are talking about the church on the move. Uh, We're going to cover... The ordinances um, and what those two are, uh, questions about the church and administration, uh, the actual day of Sunday and Sunday worship, and then really uh, the application of where do we fit in as individuals inside of the church. So uh, we're going to get started in talking about the ordinances. Um, by the way, guys, how you doing, Dustin? Oh, hey, you're talking to us? Yeah.
1: I was just about to say, do you talking ex- to the audience, do you expect them to yeah, answer while in, they're riding in their car? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm doing good. Good day so
0: far. It's a hot one out there.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: So today we're talking about the church on the move. Uh, ordinances, the two ordinances are anybody guess? Da-da-da-da-da. Baptism, Baptism and, the and, and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, tell us a little bit about baptism, DP. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know,
1: you may remember from our last podcast, uh, Wayne Grudem talked about a pure church has to have proper ordinances, and so in Baptist life, we believe in two ordinances, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper, and baptism is, I mean, it's, it's pretty much a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is only for members, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but we have all these examples in Scripture of why baptism is important. Uh, When Jesus went to begin his ministry, he went to his cousin, John the Baptist, who was baptizing people in the Jordan, and he said, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So we have Jesus' example, to be obedient to the Lord and to fulfill all righteousness, a person should be baptized. And then we have the early teachings of the church uh, included, you want to repent, believe, and be baptized. And so the early sharing of the gospel included... Once you're saved, you get baptized. And then we have the teachings of Paul in Romans chapter 6, where he talks about baptism as this symbol of dying to yourself and coming alive in Christ. And even in Ephesians, he mentions baptism as one of the unifying factors of believers. And so when we talk about baptism, there are some questions that come into our mind. Uh, One is, how do you baptize? We call that uh, the mode of baptism. Another is the subject of baptism. In other words, who actually is allowed to get baptized and then what's the purpose of baptism? Why, why do we even do it to begin with? And so let's start off with the mode of baptism of how do you baptize somebody. And we would say that the, the Greek word baptizo, it, it means to wash, but it means to wash in a very specific manner, uh, to submerge it in water and to get it clean. And so the word itself implies immersion. And so we would say the way to be baptized is by immersion. Uh, How else could you uh, have this symbol of dying to yourself and coming alive in Christ if you don't go under the water to be buried with Christ in baptism and you come out of the water to be raised with Him in new life? When you pour water on someone or you sprinkle water on someone, you don't get this same imagery. And I would even say, you know, if John the Baptist was baptizing uh, with sprinkling, Why did he have to go all the way out to the Jordan to do it? Couldn't he just go to the town's nearest well and say, guys, come to the well and I'll sprinkle you? I mean, maybe it was all part of him being uh, a prophet and him being out in the wilderness, but uh, I think that there's a reason that he's in the Jordan and we have this imagery of dying to ourselves and coming alive in Christ. It's because the mode of baptism is immersion. Uh, It's just not sprinkling. And there's this document put out by sort of the first disciples after Uh, the apostolic age after all the apostles had uh, passed on. And it's called the Didache. And it's basically a lot of people were asking, how do we baptize people? And the Didache says you baptize people by immersion. And they even emphasized in running water, like a river, uh, because that would be clean water at the time. And so they said the best way to baptize somebody is by immersion. Although they did go on to say, if water is in scarce supply you can sprinkle someone, and if you have no water at all, they even went so far as to say you could take a bottle of sand and pour it over somebody. So, I mean, there are exceptions, but the best way to baptize somebody is by immersion. That's what we would say as as Baptists.
0: Yeah, we we use the term a lot um, at our church. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it's necessary for obedience. And it's a big deal. And it's a big deal... The mode is important because of the symbolism, and what does it mean? Well, faith is the means by which we are united to Christ, but baptism is the expression of that. Baptism is the the communicating that you are saved with a lost world. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection. So we know the mode. That's argued about sometimes between denominations, but if you go with what God's Word clearly says... Um, you know, Jesus came up out of the water. so many verses you can go to to talk about the mode. But uh, I think a bigger, even more important than that really is, or maybe not more important, just as would be who is baptized.
1: Absolutely. And so we call that the, the subject of baptism. Who is the person getting baptized? And we would say as Baptist, it's the individual believer. It is the, the person who has put their faith in Jesus. And we see this example Uh, When Paul goes to Philippi, there's a jailer, and he wants to put his faith in Jesus. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you need to believe, and you'll be saved. And then later on in the passage, then he gets baptized. Uh, We would also look at the story of the criminal on the cross, and we would say, you know, he wasn't baptized, but he put his faith in Jesus. So is salvation, I mean, is baptism necessary for salvation? And we would say, no, it's not. It comes after salvation. And so, you know, it's the believer who gets baptized, but it doesn't regenerate you. So you don't take a person who's never believed in, in the gospel and baptize them and expect that that somehow magically saved them whenever we're told in uh, Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And so there's nothing that he can do to save him. He's got to put his faith in Jesus to receive grace and to be saved and so we baptize the individual believer not the person who is lost not the unregenerate and it's not the covenant community either you don't just baptize someone because they are a child of someone who is saved i mean that that doesn't work they have to have their own personal faith in jesus and so when it comes to uh, passages in the bible where it talks about their whole household got saved or their whole family got saved uh, when i see those passages I, I want to say yeah sure you baptized their whole family but there are too many variables that we just don't know about like who was the youngest person in their household for the philippian jailer uh, a lot of times jailers were retired uh, roman soldiers and so if if you got this jailer here it's likely that he's older in age when you think about his whole family he is probably a older guy with older children and it makes sense. You baptize this whole household, well, maybe the youngest one's not an infant. And you, these instances, they just have too many unforeseen variables. We don't know what their household consisted of. And so it's it's just too much for us to jump to the assumption, uh, you've got to baptize the whole family because they haven't put their faith in Jesus. So I don't see any reason why you would baptize
0: them. you have anything yep. to add to that? So. You see a lot of people, you know, especially in the states, that that they just because they were dunked as a child or sprinkled as a child, they think they're good to go, and they have a false sense of salvation because so many people tie salvation up with an act, an, the act of baptism. Yeah, and that's not biblical. Yeah, um, it's important, but uh, it's an expression of what of the gospel. A quick story. Uh, one time, I was at orientation for college students getting ready to go overseas, and one of the college students. Uh, was ready, was equipped, and the last night before we they headed out the next day, came to us and said, "Hey, I feel like the Lord's telling me right now I cannot go overseas share the gospel if I don't have my baptism right." Just said I've been praying about it, been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it for six months. It's on my heart. I kept putting it off, but I'm telling you, the Lord is just really pressing on me to do this. And so we filled up horse trough, and we took him outside one night, last night before they left out. And so he gets so climbs over uh, in the horse trough, shares his testimony. There's like 200 people gathered around him outside underneath the stars. And as he's sharing, I hear I feel a tap on my shoulder, and it's a young college student. She says, Hey, Brad, I think the Lord's telling me I need to get baptized. And I said, Oh, really? Okay. So tell me why. And so she begins to share. She grew up in a different denomination. Um, when she came to know Christ, as a you know, she was in high school, but she never got baptized. And so I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call your mom and dad and tell them what you just told me and ask for their blessing. So she did. Well, apparently that didn't take very long because by the time that dude uh, gets baptized, I tell Jess Jennings, I'm a missionary. This is what's happening. He says, well, if you've counseled with her, mom and dad are good. Let's go. And so she gets over in the horse trough. She begins to share her testimony. As she's sharing, tap on the shoulder. Long story short, we baptized 37 people that night who were getting ready to go take the gospel. And many of them, not not degrading any other denomination, but many of those grew up in churches where they didn't have a healthy view of baptism. And I will never forget the spirit of the Lord moving in that situation. And so I just remember the missionaries were like, okay, you guys counsel with them and they give us a thumbs up. Or a thumbs down. They're not ready or that we need to delay. Or the baptism is sufficient already. And so to make sure it's not a just getting caught up in the emotion type of thing. So there were several that we said, hey, we think you're good to go. Uh, we, we need to talk more. But a lot of them, they got baptized. And it was powerful. And so that's just an example of maybe you're listening to this podcast today and you've been thinking about it. And maybe this is the Lord pressing you to just go ahead and, and get that right uh, we just baptized a man in our church who had been waiting for years to get that right and when he did it was such a powerful powerful picture to his family to his grandchildren and to our church and so uh, if you can identify with Jesus in any way um, this is the way to do it so we would encourage you to to go talk to your pastor and to take that step of obedience
1: yeah absolutely And, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about there are so many places in the Bible where we're told repent and be baptized or believe and be baptized. It's never just be baptized. There's always something that goes hand in hand with it. And, you know, I think about infants and infants can't repent. Infants can't believe. They can't put their faith in Jesus. And so why would we just jump to the assumption that, hey, we should baptize them? Uh, That's just not the picture of the gospel and putting our faith in Jesus and being saved by grace through faith alone. So I think, yeah, absolutely. It's got to be the believer. We believe in believer's baptism. And then what's the purpose of baptism? Well, it's a powerful symbol. We already talked about from Romans chapter six of dying to yourself and rising with Christ. Uh, But it also signifies that you are becoming a part of the family of God, the body. You're Uh, united in baptism. That's what Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5 says, that we have one baptism. And so baptism signifies that you belong to uh, the church. It also demonstrates obedience. Uh, All the times whenever uh, the apostles are teaching and they call people to repent, then they say and be baptized, or believe and be baptized. And Jesus even said it's to fulfill all righteousness. So baptism is uh, the first step of a believer being obedient to christ i mean it goes almost hand in hand with salvation but it doesn't save you it's just that first step of obedience of a believer Uh, it's important to note that it doesn't regenerate you it doesn't save you to be baptized Uh, ephesians 1 13 you know some people say that uh, baptism is like this sign or this seal that you are saved but ephesians 1 13 says no it's the holy spirit that seals you and then we think about you know the story of the first Gentiles to get saved under the uh, preaching of Peter. It's Cornelius, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit before they ever get baptized. And so in that story, you know the Holy Spirit is definitely what sealed them. And then Peter says, well, what's preventing them from getting baptized if they've already gotten the Holy Spirit? So we just see these examples throughout the Bible. We would also say it's a prerequisite to church membership, and then therefore the Lord's Supper. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, he says uh, you should take it in a worthy manner, you should be able to examine yourself and we would say unbelievers would be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so that kind of brings us to our second ordinance the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper? Well at its core, it's powerful symbolism that we have Jesus' body and he is going to Die on the cross, and in the same way, we are following after him and we partake of his body and then his blood, and which was poured out for us. And so, we partake of the wine, which represents his blood. And so, the bread is the body, uh, the wine or the grape juice is the blood. And so, this was established by Jesus. And so, during the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus sort of establishes just some basics of the Lord's Supper. I mean, he is the one who establishes it, he is the one who has the very first Lord's Supper. And then he calls the disciples to repeat this, to do this as often as they do it in remembrance of him. So when we take the Lord's Supper, there are a few things that we're doing. We're doing it repetitiously uh, because Jesus has called us to do it, and we do it to remember him and to look back on all the things that he has done for us. Uh, It proclaims his death, the fact that he did give his body and his blood for us. And so it's a form of worship of proclaiming what he's done, but also he says to do this uh, in remembrance until he comes. It proclaims his death until he comes. So it anticipates not only that Jesus came the first time and that he died on the cross and that it proclaims his death, but it also proclaims that he's coming back again. So there's all this powerful symbolism in the Lord's Supper. Not only does it represent Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, but it also represents what his death means, that we remember his life and his ministry, and that he rose from the grave and that he is coming back again someday. It's just such a such powerful symbolism. And then also, Paul goes on to explain that there are some other right aspects of the Lord's Supper that we should be doing. Uh, he talks about that the Lord's Supper does have a spiritual effect on. The believer. He even talks about people who haven't examined themselves and are not taking the Lord's Supper the way they should, that they could become not just spiritually affected, but physically affected uh, for not partaking in the Lord's Supper in the way that they should. You can see these verses in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 17, and then again in 11, 17 through 22. Uh, he also says that it should be people who take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, just like earlier we talked about it, it's for believers and people who have. Examine themselves. And then he also says that it should be done in unity and, and not in isolation. It's the body comes together and they don't think more highly of themselves or separate other people from them, but instead they do this in unity. And so that was a hard uh, decision we had to come to back during COVID. How do we do the Lord's Supper in unity when we can't meet together? And we decided, you know, you can still be unified with the body, even though you know you may be joining us via live stream and so we decided you know that was still unity and not isolation and so you know we just say you need to partake of the Lord's supper in at least in spirit with a body of believers you can't just go home be by yourself and decide oh you know what it's been a long time since I've taken the Lord's supper let me grab this loaf of bread and crack open some grape juice and take the Lord's supper right now that's not how it works you do it with fellow believers, part of your body of Christ. And so, you know, those are just some some basics of the Lord's Supper. We also have some questions that people may ask about the Lord's Supper. Uh, one that we probably never think of in, in Baptist circles. In fact, I don't think I ever heard about this until I got into to college. Uh, and that is, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? And so, you know, there's some really interesting perspectives on this. Uh, Catholics, their view is called transubstantiation, and the idea is, as you eat the bread and you drink the wine, it becomes Christ's flesh and Christ's blood in your body. Uh, I would say that's crazy. Kind of, it's kind of wild. In fact, that was the reason that the early church, in some ways, were uh, accused of cannibalism because they were always talking about eating flesh and drinking blood and people thought, oh, man, these, these people are nuts. Uh, but we don't really line up with the Catholic view. In fact, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, we have uh, Luther. He starts the Lutheran Church, and he's, his belief is called consubstantiation, which trans meaning it changes or it transforms, con meaning with. And so he says that the substance of Christ is present with the Lord's Supper. In other words, you may not be able to see it like physically, but it's there. That doesn't take away from the fact that it's there. And he has this uh, sort of metaphor. He says, it's like taking a piece of iron and putting it over the fire. It gets hot. I mean, it gets red hot. And you take it away, and it's still hot and on fire, basically. And he says, it's still iron, but you can tell... The fire is there too, even though, I mean, it's not really on fire anymore, but the presence of the fire remains. So that's his view, consubstantiation. Now, other reformers like John Calvin, they considered it more like uh, you could feel the heat, almost like the sun is in the sky, but you feel the heat of the sun as it beams down on you. And so Jesus, he's not coming down and joining us in the Lord's Supper, but you can feel His presence like heat from the sun. Then there's Zwingli. Zwingli was a uh, Swiss reformer. He said that Christ's presence is He's always present everywhere He is, but you feel His presence more when you take the Lord's Supper because of this symbolic expression of faith. You just can feel his presence more palpably. And so you see each view is very similar in some way or another, but they just differ slightly. Now then there's the view that uh, the Lord's Supper is purely symbolic and that you just do it out of obedience and in remembrance and you proclaim and when you do it, the symbol proclaims Christ's coming and anticipates his coming and uh, you know, all the things that we just talked about earlier. But this sort of, you know, it's it's a good view. I mean, it is highly, powerfully symbolic, but it sort of minimizes the spiritual effect. And I would say that because the Lord's Supper is an act of worship, you may feel God's presence during the Lord's Supper more than you would in any mundane activity of life because it's an act of faith and worship, and you're seeking the Lord, so of course you're going to feel Him, to to use the word I used earlier, more palpably. Uh, Brett, you were sharing a story with me yesterday about uh, an experience you had when taking the Lord's Supper.
0: Yeah, um, I think it was—I don't know, we all had these moments when the Lord just unexpectedly knocks us upside the head. And so I was just a normal—I think it was a Sunday night. No one ever expects God to move on Sunday night, and that was me. And so there I was, and we were taking the Lord's Supper, and it was at a different—I think it was like in a fellowship hall of a church— and the pastor's just explaining it and walking us through just simple thing you've heard a thousand times, right? And it just hit me one more time. hit me again, the powerful, uh, the fact that the body of God was broken for us and that He shed His blood. And so God uses this symbolism to remind us that the gospel is not just a fuzzy fairy, fairy tale. It's something that really happened, yeah. and it, it makes the difference in our lives every day. So... Not not too much really grand about the story, except for the fact that it just woke me up. Yeah. And if had we not been taking the Lord's Supper, I don't think I would have had that experience. Yeah, it was a powerful experience.
1: Uh, you felt the Lord's presence more than any any other mundane activity of life. And so then another question people ask is who's allowed to actually serve the Lord's Supper? Who's the proper administrator of the Lord's Supper? And it, there's nowhere in the Bible where this is clearly laid out exactly how you should do this but just for the sake of unity you know i would say it should at least be someone approved by the church and you know people who have been ordained by the church i mean they're automatically they've got the church's stamp of approval and so you know when you have your deacons and your pastors as the ones administrating the lord's supper well that's the church has already approved them to serve and to lead in the church so that just seems like the the easiest solution but you know as long as it's someone approved by the church It could be anyone. We should remember the priesthood of the believer that anyone could baptize someone. Anyone can go to the Lord in in prayer, and anyone could potentially serve the Lord's Supper. Uh, We just used ordained individuals because they've already been pre-approved by the church. And then, of course, when you talk about the people administrating the Lord's Supper, you've got to think about, well, who are the people who can receive the Lord's Supper? And we already talked about... Uh, earlier that it's for believers only that <clears throat> baptism is a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper and so it's it's for believers who have been baptized and some churches even go so far as to say it can only be the members in their church. Now the reason they do this is for proper church discipline, which we'll talk about later. Uh, church discipline is whenever you remove someone from your uh, membership role for, the fact that they're not following God and they're doing something destructive to themselves and the church. And so what are the benefits of membership? Well, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper and participating in the church and its fellowships. Um, But you can't prevent someone from attending your church because you want them to hear the gospel. But other churches would say, yes, but the Lord's Supper is for believers and members of our church. And if we have to exercise church discipline on you, then you are no longer a member of our church. Therefore, you no longer take the Lord's Supper. Now, other churches, they don't have that same conviction, and so they let any believer that's present in their church that day take the Lord's Supper. So that that varies church to church, d- depending on how much they really you know,
0: are strongly feel about how that affects their church discipline. Quick survey in the room. Who was a child grown up in a church in America out of all of us three? And— There was a time where mom and dad would not let us take the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Matthew? You always were able to take it? Not when I was... uh, Well, obviously, when I was younger as a child, I was... You know, I wouldn't take it. And so... But after I was saved, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I just remember being so upset, man. You you feel like you're missing out. You're sitting there on the pew and passing the bread. It's kind of cool, you know, passing the little... Juice cups and you know, mom looks at you with those eyes like, No, don't you touch that. Yeah, son. I will I will get you after this service. Yeah. And I just remember being so upset, getting in the car on the way home, like, Why can't I do this? Like, you know, I want to be a part, I wanna follow God and they're like, No, you've gotta get saved. You've got to repent of all your sins and accept Jesus to be your savior. And looking back, praise God for a mom and dad like that. Yeah. And absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, it's likely that you know, we have some parents that may be listening to this, thinking, well, "What do I do when I, I I'm, I've got my kids here? You know, I'm at church. I'm they're passing the bread. They're pat. What do I do?" And I would say, if if they have not made a profession of faith, don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. Yeah, that's right. And the cool thing about that is it provides you opportunities
1: yep. to share the gospel with your kids because they're going to want to know why can't I take this? Uh, not too long ago, they had the Lord's Supper at my home church, and my brother he still goes there with my nephews. And they did not give him the Lord's Supper. And he was very curious about this, but he was also very young. This was probably a couple years ago. And so they explained to him what what this represents. And later that night, they did something. They were just being goofy. And he said, I know what's wrong with y'all. Y'all drank that blood earlier today. That's why y'all acted (laughs) so crazy. And so, you know, he didn't get it then. But I'm sure they've had other Lord's suppers since then. They've every time got to explain, this is the Lord's blood poured out for us. This is his body broken for us. And he's gotten to see that image over and over and over again. And one day, one of those conversations, it's going to be a seed planted, and he's going to get saved, and he's going to get to take the Lord's Supper. And I remember the first time after I got saved as a child, uh, I wasn't actually saved. I hadn't figured out uh, quite what it meant to follow the the Lord, but I had made a profession of faith. And I remember my dad sitting down with me and saying, so today in church we're having the Lord's Supper, and this is the first time you get to take it and explain it to me what it meant. And uh, you know that that's a powerful moment that's that sticks cool. in my mind, and that's the opportunities you get as a parent when you have the discipline to tell your kids, "This isn't for you yet. Not until you've made a profession of faith."
0: Yeah, and I think anytime we think about the Lord's Supper, there's always this awkwardness, like it is awkward, and you think, "Lord, why would this be an ordinance for your church, for your people? Why would this be such a big deal?" And I think one of the one of the reasons, out of probably a million is for parents to have those conversations with kids because it gives them that opportunity to share the gospel, to explain the cross, explain the the body broken, blood poured out for us.
1: Yeah, and sometimes in those awkward, symbolic moments are the times where we get to reflect the most and we see the sincerity of the gospel. Right. And so it's beautiful. It's a beautiful uh, symbol, and it's something that we should take seriously. It's not something that you should just, you know, after you have committed your pets in for the thousandth time, coming to the church the next day and just nonchalantly take the Lord's Supper. Paul says that we should examine ourselves. So when you're talking about who can take the Lord's Supper, it's the believer, it's church members, it's the person who has examined themselves. And Paul says that some people in the church in Corinth, they had not examined themselves and that it would actually Hmm. uh, produce physical harm in their lives. And so that's who should take the, the Lord's Supper. And then the elements of the Lord's Supper. Does it matter if you have unleavened bread or leavened bread or grape juice or wine or whatever you use? And, you know, I I like to appeal to Erickson here. Uh, He, in his systematic theology, says it doesn't matter as long as the elements that you use retain the symbolism. As long as the symbolism is still there, that's where the power is. And then he goes on to say, you know, he went to a church one time where they would change the bread that they would use, not because of any symbolic reason, but just because they wanted to add something special to their Lord's Supper. And so they would use a different bread every time just to get people curious, oh, what bread are they going to use this time? Is it going to taste better? Is it going to be something special? And so it was distracting from the meaning and the purpose and the symbolism behind the Lord's Supper, and it was taking away from the the great symbolism instead of pointing to Christ, it was distracting people from Christ. And so he said, "I wouldn't do that." So I mean, you could use the elements are flexible, but you want to maintain that symbolic nature.
0: It makes me think of a story. One time, I had a professor who, probably the only professor I had that had this view, but man, he was all about. You cannot have yeast, yeah. And you know, just because of the Old Testament, because of the Old Covenant, and you know, th- there are some principles behind those laws that still apply. Um, it, but I remember thinking, we as he was saying that, I'm thinking, well, our church that I'm at at that time, man, we were using all kinds of bread. <laughs> and I remember thinking that next time we did it, we we were using like a, I don't know where they got it from, but it was the kind of thing where we. Had the bread down front, and had like a bowl, and so here I was as one of the pastors standing down front, and I'm holding this little, this little bowl of juice, and people would come up and grab their bread and dip it. And as I look come down the aisles, Miss Joyce Rogers, Agent Rogers' widow, and she's coming down, and I said, Miss Joyce, you know this is Jesus, the body of Christ broken for you, and and I'm thinking afterwards, you know, if that professor ever says anything to me, I'm gonna say, well, look, Miss Joyce Rogers, she took that bread <laughs> with yeast in it. And uh you can talk to her about it. That's right. <laughs> so I th- I think if it is symbolic, right? Then it's it's more of the act of worship rather than what you're using. Because, you know, truly some places don't have access to uh the same kind of juice like we have and fruit of the vine, oinos and uh and bread. Maybe scarce. So you may have to crack open a random cracker somewhere oh, on the yeah, backside yeah. of a desert.
1: Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, Erickson uses the example of uh, a place that may not have bread, but they're near water and they can fish. And he says, you know, fish when you cook it, it's white, kind of looks like bread. He said, plus it's meat, so it's more body than bread actually is. And so
0: he says, you know, it it maintains the symbolism. You got to do it. You got to do it. Right. And in the early church, uh, you know, fish would be a much more expensive um, grocery item than the bread.
1: Yeah, that's true. And so then, you know, how frequently do we take the Lord's Supper? This is a a debated uh, subject about the Lord's Supper. Do we take it every month, every week, every quarter? How often do we take the Lord's Supper? And Erickson, uh, I love his answer. He says, uh, frequent enough that you maintain regular reflection, but infrequent enough to prevent triviality. I think that's a a great answer right there. You got it often enough that you get to reflect about the Lord and His coming, but then also infrequent enough that it doesn't just become this mundane activity that your church does all the time. And so those are the two ordinances of the church when the church is on the move, when they're doing things. This is one of the important things that the church does. Uh, But then you gotta think about what's the one thing that people do, uh, that the church is open for every week? Worship. Worship for the Lord's Day, for Sundays. And so Let's talk about the Lord's Day. This is something else that the church does every single week. Uh, It is a a regular observance, and we see this in the New Testament. Jesus, he attended the synagogue regularly. Uh, It says in the Gospels that one time he went to the synagogues, and it says, as was his custom, uh, he went to the synagogue every Sabbath. And so Jesus himself submitted himself to every week on the Sabbath day going to a synagogue. Uh, then it's, he also taught his disciples that where two or more gather in his name, he is there also. And so we're instructed as disciples of Jesus to come together and meet with one another with Christ in our presence. So in Acts chapter 2, after 3,000 people get saved, we're told that the early church would come together daily to break bread and hear the apostles' teaching. And so the book of Hebrews also tells us not to forsake assembling together. It's something that we should do often regularly it's the Lord's Day we see in the book of Acts that uh, no longer do people meet on the Sabbath day which was uh, Saturday on the Jewish calendar but instead they would meet after Sabbath on the first day of the week that's how we end up with uh, Sundays being our uh, the Lord's day our day of worship is because that was the day that the Lord rose from the grave Uh, the early church consisted only of Jews before it went to the Gentiles and so they couldn't meet on Sabbath. So they would meet on the first day of the week instead. And it's a day set aside for worship and spiritual devotion to the Lord. So the Lord's Day is something that we're called to do as believers. And the things that we do on the Lord's Day should be should align with our conscience as we're led by the Holy Spirit. It should be a day that we come together for worship and spiritual devotion Uh, Not a day where we distract ourselves from following the Lord and devoting ourselves to Him.
0: Yeah, I think worship is what not only we're called to do as a church, but we're created to do. That's that's why it's one of our purpose of the heart beating inside of our chest is to worship. And so Sunday shouldn't be like, boy, this is the first time I've done this in a while. No, this is the time when you come together with other believers to do that, to sing to the Lord, to give God praise, to to, for his creation to shout back to him and, and bring glory to his name you know the Bible is so clear about let the heavens be glad let the earth rejoice let the sea roar and all that fills it and, and God wants us to join in with all creation uh, to to worship and so man COVID has been a, a real test for that for a lot of churches oh, yeah. you know, are we going to keep it what's, what's it worth right that's right um, that, that's a, another episode as well what we will we risk to be able to come together as believers on His day at His house, the way He's commanded. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of us, you know, we wanted to be respectful of our authorities, our authorities. Yeah. Um, but now you're seeing the abuse of that in places like Canada, um, and so I think it's that continuing thought of. What and in the future, what's going to come in the future? Yeah, like what are we willing to risk to make that happen? Yeah, to absolutely. worship God's people. So. Yeah, because at the end of the day,
1: God's law transcends man's law, and when God tells you to do something, I mean, and the government or the your authority figures tell you to do the opposite, I mean, you got to draw your line in the sand and say, "I'm sorry, but I, I'm going with the Lord."
0: That's right. Honestly, I think some of this uh, COVID and and all these things is really addressed rehearsal for what's to come and uh, let the listeners hear it said right now that when that day comes please send me some of those little millionaires at christmas time like I would really appreciate it it's just I'm going to be in jail just send me some of those things and I'll be good I'll be good
1: there you go so yeah absolutely so the lord's day uh is something that the church is supposed to do the ordinance is the lord's day uh, next, uh, we talk about ministry. So, you know, I've got four here. We we worship, which we just talked about in the Lord's Day. We got edification. We're here to build one another up and hold each other accountable. Evangelism to go on mission and share the gospel with people. And we should be concerned with social things. We should be concerned with our community, and we should we should have that social concern. But Erickson makes sure to say in his systematic theology. That all of this is done with the gospel at its center. We don't just have social concern just for the sake of social concern. We have social concern for the gospel. The gospel guides that social concern, and we have that social concern to get the gospel out.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about worship, uh, talking about these functions of the church. Um, I think discipleship is a big part of that. You know, evangelism is the very first part of discipleship. That's right. Like, who you you know, especially with the discipleship movement we saw 15 years ago, discipleship, discipleship, which is true. That's what we've been called to do. But who are you going to disciple if you never share the gospel with someone? Yep. right. they got to come and know Christ. That's part of the process. Right. So, and the opposite is true. Sometimes we have this tendency to think
1: that making disciples is all we have to do is share the gospel. That's right and we never invest in anyone's life.
0: Yeah, and so we saw 30 years of that yeah. in the States and, and the damaging impact that that had. So uh, hopefully, 2021, we're more balanced with that, we want to be balanced as a church. So yeah, discipleship is a function. Fellowship, big deal, which is part of the, the coming together on the Sundays, part of seeing one another. Uh, you mentioned social aspect. Uh, as long as we're careful to make sure the gospel is that's right uh, above all, Ministry, missions, this is why we go, you know, part of our mission statement is to go together um, to the nations, to go be the hands and feet of Christ, to serve, to to wash feet, to point people to Christ, to feed the hungry, to stand up for truth, and that's who we want to be. So there's a lot of purposes, a lot of functions of the New Testament church.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We want to be out there and we want to be on the move. And one of the functions of the New Testament church is yeah, a topic we don't like to talk about, but spiritual discipline. And I would like to say that spiritual discipline really starts with the spiritual disciplines, and that is being able to read your Bible and Take hold up your each cross. other accountable. That's right. Pray. All these things that we know as believers we're called to do. And so if we will discipline ourselves in our walk with the Lord, then we would have no need for spiritual discipline as in correction. Uh, But, unfortunately, there is that need for correction. Why do we do it? Well, it protects the individual who is in uh, chronic detrimental sin, but it also protects the other individuals around them so that way they don't fall into the same snares and the same traps. It also protects the reputation and the health of the entire church, and it brings the utmost glory to God. We don't want people looking at our church and thinking that we serve a God who is just as sinful as the mistakes that the people in the church make. Our God is holy. He is glorious. He deserves to be honored. And so we should not live our lives trapped in sin. That dishonors Him. And so when do we step in? Because all of us sin. And so we all make mistakes and if we exercise spiritual discipline on every single mistake we'd have no one in our churches. So when do we exercise church discipline? Well it's when There is a sin that is chronic, and it has an outward effect. And so it begins to affect other individuals. It begins to hurt people in our church. It begins to hurt people in our community. And another characteristic is that it's evident. It's not something we're just assuming about someone or that we've heard through a rumor. Like We know this is a sin in your life, and it's open, and it's outward, and it's evident, and we know that you are living in sin. Those are the moments when spiritual discipline must happen. So then the next question is, well, how? How do we discipline people? How do we have spiritual discipline in our church? Well, you go to someone first one-on-one, and that's accountability. You find someone who loves that person, and they go to them, and they say, look, I love you, and I'm not perfect either, but I want to help you. I want to show you this in your life, and I hope you would do the same for me, and I want to help you pursue the Lord instead of having this sin in your life. And if the person refuses to listen to someone who loves them, who came to them in private with a one-on-one conversation in accountability, then you got to bring in more people, people who have seen it, people who know about it, people who have witnessed the sin. And then this group basically stages an intervention. Uh, it can, usually it's two people, but it could be more. But people who come in and say, look, we need to intervene in your life. This is a sin in your life, and it is killing you, and it is killing our church, and we can't put up with it anymore. And then if the person still refuses to listen to them, refuses to be restored, then you take it a step further and you bring it before the whole church. And then there's only one of two things that can happen. Either they get removed from the membership role, or they realize their sin is a problem, and they seek restoration, and they come back to the church. Now,
0: Which is the purpose of that's discipline. That's
1: right. You want the restoration. And even if you have to remove them, it's for the purpose that they realize, man, I miss that authentic relationship I have with my church friends. I miss that worship. I miss being able to take the Lord's Supper. I miss all these things about the church. And so then they realize, this is bad, and I need to be restored. And so restoration in all of this is, is the chief end, the chief goal Of every step of this process and so no one is going to exercise church discipline to put you down or hurt you or out of hate they're doing it because they love you and they want to see you restored and so these are all things that the church is responsible for Uh, the ordinances the Lord's Day and worship it's, it's ministry church discipline but then you may be asking well what is my role in all this how do I as an individual fit into the church So here's just a a long list, and then uh, I'll let Brett explain how that fits into what our church does. Uh, So one list that I found in my research was, well, your role is to attend church. It's to participate when you come. That's right. Yeah, show up, be here. But don't just show up. Get involved, participate, find something to do. Uh, Become a mature believer. Grow in maturity. Serve in the church in some capacity. Do something help in that ministry that the church is responsible for. Uh, Represent the church everywhere you go. You tell the community, I'm a member of this church and I live the way that I do. And I do the things that I do because I follow the Lord and then share the gospel. You know, every one of us as believers were told go and make disciples of all nations. We were told you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We are supposed to go out there and tell people about Jesus. And then there are some other unpopular roles that people don't want to hear about sometimes, but church members are called to give generously. Uh, You're called to tithe. The Bible teaches that. You're called to to give to your local church so that we, we can pool those funds and use them and cooperate with other churches to be about God's mission more effectively. And also, another unpopular role that people don't like about the church is submitting to authority. Because those authority figures were put in place by the church, the church congregation we talked about in our last episode. If the church is congregationally led, then they are the ones who put these people in authority. And so they're, they're your leaders that you put there. So submit to them, trust them, and also understand that they're God's man. They're called by God to serve God. And so submit to your authorities. And so I'm going to turn it over to Brett. You know, we've got this long list, but... What is the mission that our church does? We simplify it down to three things.
0: Gather together and worship. That's the participation. That's where we gather t- together and we sing together. We, we learn the Bible together. We pray together as a body. And that happens in a large level, but that also happens on a smaller scale, which is the grow together community. We grow together together. Um, it's hard to grow together in actual community, which is investing in one another, learning each other, hurting with each other, crying with each other, serving with each other on a Sunday morning in a large room gathering. It's, it's near impossible. So that's why we have small groups. And you know we, we ride that horse all the time because we know the healthiest churches have the best small groups
1: yeah that's right those intimate relationships they
0: matter that's right and so it's not so much about your group name or it's simply coming into a covenant relationship hey we're going to chase this together we're going to chase the Lord together we're going to pursue His call in our lives together and we're going to be partners in the ministry and so that is our growing together and then the last thing of our mission statement is to go together which is the fruit of that it's the fruit of growing deep relationship which the more time you hang out with people that love the Lord the more bold you're going to become the more uh, courageous you're going to want to conquer those mountains for the Lord and you want to stand up for truth you're going to stand up for what's right and point people to the only God that can save them so that's the the mission aspect of our mission statement is the going and that's what we've been talking about church on the move I went to Israel a few years ago and we saw a inscription a really a a stone piece of art that was from about 50 AD of a temple. And on the temple, at the bottom of it, it had wheels. And it almost had like either rims or hubcaps on it. It was so clear of the wheels, and it was almost like a wagon wheel, exactly what it was. And it had wheels on that church, and it was symbolic of, hey, our church is moving forward. And it it lines up with what we say all the time, and is the kingdom of God's on the move. The kingdom wave is rolling. Good news is nobody's going to stop it. Nothing's going to stop the church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. That's
1: right. And, you know, we're on the move. Our motto is gather, grow, and go. And that really comes full circle, just like a wheel. When you gather and you grow and you go, you find more people. And they begin, become part of your church, and they gather, and they grow, and they go. And, I mean, it just keeps going full circle, and your church grows and God moves and... And eventually you outgrow your building and you got to plant churches all over the place and you got to send missionaries all over the world. And now you're not just reaching your community. You're doing exactly what God said. You're reaching the whole world. And that's what we want to be about. And so we want to be
0: a church that is on the move. And so we challenge you, friend, to find that local church where you can plant your life, where you can uh, get involved. I was thinking today. I wish I could go back and have two minutes with every former student that I had during student ministry. You know, they've grown up a lot of them and I wish I could shout to all of them in love. Don't just go to the church that feels good. Don't just go to the place that's got the best coffee. Don't just go to the place that's convenient. But ask the Lord God, where do you want me to plant my life? Because it makes all the difference. And for many people, we gotta be the change, you know, bring the change that we wanna see in our churches. We can complain about it or we can be the solution. And you may be that solution. Well, I wish my church had better small groups. Okay? You be a part of that. Yep. You know, I wish my church um had more musicians. Go learn how to play an instrument or pray people into the house that can, right? Are you praying about this need in your church? Uh, I wish people would take more international mission trips. Okay. Do you have a passport? Right? Okay, so you don't. Like what's the first step? Let's And a lot of it is a prayer journey. Right, We have not because we ask not, because we're so flesh-oriented. And I think the Lord's just like, hey, I've given you the helper. I'm filthy rich. I've got all the resources you need to accomplish my will in your life and in your church's life. Ask me. And that's the, I think that's the first step is just being honest with the Lord. And if God's put desires in us, well, let's just ask Him to, f- to fulfill those. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today. It's been a great honor. We hope you've taken some nugget somewhere. Uh, from from God's Word through us and we're just tickled to death that you joined us today. God bless you and have a great week. That wraps up everything for today's episode and we hope you enjoyed listening. If you liked today's episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all future content we release. We also want to let you know about our website fpcbsl.org, where you can find further information on our church, our sermon library, and much more content there. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll catch you in the next one.